This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, welcome. We're glad to have you today. We're doing a bonus episode because April is National Minority Health Month. And this year, the HHS Office of Minority Health is focusing on the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on racial and ethnic minority communities. This bonus episode is a compilation of viewpoints on health equity and racial disparities of care from some of our former guests in the past year. We hope you take the time to listen intently to their important messages. Certainly over the last year, we have been exposed to the great inequities that have existed in our society for far too long. We have one major obligation we have to each other as humans, and that's to tell the truth. And the truth is there are so many inequities in our society for minorities, including the manifestation of institutional racism within our nation's health system. As leaders in value-based care, we have to be accountable to the endeavor that we are about. We endeavor to, in fact, ensure every patient receives the best treatment possible so they can live the life they are intended to live. That we endeavor to create the opportunity for health equity is our ultimate endeavor, and that's true regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or otherwise. We sincerely hope you find meaning in this bonus episode and that you're able to gain awareness for how important health equity and social justice are in winning this race to value. As we begin the bonus episode, we're going to start off with Farzad Mostashari, CEO of Alidaid, and Lurla Joseph, CEO of Central Virginia Coalition of Healthcare Providers, who provide their important perspective on health equity. The murder of George Floyd was a reckoning for American society and I think all of us, and it was a reckoning for Alidaid. And we believe that we could not be bystanders to this. We can't say, oh, we're doing our thing on population health, and that's just gonna help everybody, and that's good enough. And 
if there's one thing we've learned is that you make change if you focus specifically on the change you wish to make. And what's within our ambit was to say, what change can we make? And we, we set health equity as one of the top five objectives for the company alongside you know, revenue and growth. And the specific health equity target we chose to, to focus on, specific, measurable, meaningful, was to reduce racial disparities in severe hypertension. Why that? It seems strangely specific. It's because it is the single greatest source of racial disparities in premature death that we can tackle. And when we looked within our own data, we found by and large, there wasn't substantial racial disparity within practices. And in fact, how individual practices by and large, the process measures that they're applying to their white and black and brown people of color are kind of similar in terms of the processes, but the outcomes are different. And we also found that practices who serve majority minority patients face more challenges and have lower performance than practices who don't. And so our strategy is twofold. One, to focus on those majority minority practices. We're creating a program now to encourage onboarding them to, to Alidaid. We've done specific outreach now into those communities of physicians, independent physicians, majority minority practices. We want to do more there. And we are paying particular attention to our practices that serve majority minority patients, including the very large number of community health centers that we're working with now in places like Mississippi and Louisiana and uh, Kansas and Utah and West Virginia. And those health centers are incredible parts of the fabric of our country's healthcare system, and we need to serve them better. And then we're doing specific things around blood pressure control. The rates of severely uncontrolled hypertension is almost twice among Black Medicare patients than white. So those are some of the things concretely that we're doing. Generally, we like to first do something before we talk about it. So we haven't been you know, out there pounding our chest on what we do around health equity. But since you asked, those are some of, some of the things that we've been working on. I've devoted most of my life to trying to bring about equity in healthcare for African-Americans. I am an African-American physician. I chose to practice in the locations that I've practiced, inner city Richmond, also practice in rural areas. And when I first learned about accountable care organizations, I was really excited that at this point in our history, we might be able to bring equal access as well as equal value to African-American patients. Having a health card, uh, a health insurance card is not enough in terms of getting the proper care that African-Americans need. Our population needs physicians that look like them, understand their cultural background. And an accountable care organization brought that together for our patients because not only were physicians practicing in silos and not collaborating with the care that they provided with patients, they just didn't have the tools that they needed. 
in a lot of instances. And so with the accountable care model, you are focusing on prevention, you're focusing on chronic disease management, and you're also focusing on collaborating with community partners, as well as your peers, and how we address some of the difficulties within our population of patients. I see this moment as an opportunity to, for America to either move forward or to become entrenched. And we see both forces happening right now. We see uh, forces of saying, let's have this conversation. Let's do something about this. And then on the other side, we, we see it saying, no, this is not something that we truly want. I mean, they don't speak of it in terms of racism. They speak of it in terms of, the, of their lifestyle and, and their way of life. These are all code words for maintaining the construct that there's not equity within our society. There are small movements. I actually belong to an organization or participate with an organization here in Richmond called Coming to the Table, where we have African-Americans and whites coming together to talk about some of these issues and examine them in a, a different perspective. It's very uncomfortable to talk about these things and, and to acknowledge it. And so there are these small movements and forces to make this happen. What we see sometimes with younger people is that they are not as patient. And so sometimes it comes across as if they're being aggressive and demanding. But if you are living within a system that you don't see opportunity for yourself or being denied, not because of your ability, but because of the color of your skin, then it does lead to strong resentment. And sometimes with young people, they just don't have that patience. So there are opportunities for us to always have these conversations, acknowledging the fact that when we look around, we see these disparities. It's interesting that you mentioned the quote of Dr. Martin Luther King, not having access to healthcare, because I used that quote recently when I addressed a, a church congregation about African-Americans not willing to take the COVID vaccine. Well, within that context, I was pointing out that because the healthcare system has not always been equitable to our people, there's always a concern that they are not getting a fair deal when it comes to healthcare and, the, and new things that are coming about and research and those sorts of things. And so there are so many past experiences that have shaped the thinking of African-Americans. And sometimes part of their unwillingness and part of the disparities is because they just have such suspicion and do not show up to the doctor when they should, when they have symptoms. And we have to figure out ways that we can dispel even those notions that even when they have access, even when they have a health insurance card, even when they're having symptoms, they should come in, but there's a distrust of the healthcare system. So it's so many different things that we have to work on at the same time. We have to recognize that when we talk about value-based care, we're talking about the investment that we make and the return on that investment. 
And what we have to recognize is as long as there are disparities in healthcare, the cost of healthcare will remain high. And so we have to figure out ways that we meet the needs of all Americans such that we begin to bring down the cost of care. Living in America, even with its disparities, even with its inequities, is the best place in the world to live. Next up are David Smith, CEO of Third Horizon Strategies, and Christina Severin, CEO of Community Care Cooperative, sharing important social commentary around equity and disparities. Getting Medicaid right improves health. Improving health improves economic development. And if 2020 taught us anything, it's that those disparities we see in communities from a public health perspective or disparities we see in communities from a racial perspective or other forms of equity, those exacerbations are uh, dilutive and they're toxic to the way we can prosper socially and economically. I was driving home. Google was taking me through some really strange route to get home, trying to dodge traffic on 294. And I found myself kind of driving through a neighborhood in Inglewood, which is a, a West Side neighborhood in the city of Chicago. And Inglewood is one of those neighborhoods where when you see shows like Fish High and, and you hear people say things like Chirac and they're emphasizing the violence of the city, the, the murder rate. That's a neighborhood where uh, where it's, it's really pronounced. And I, I remember pulling up onto a stop sign and, and looking out and I saw a young black girl that was about the age of my, my oldest daughter at the time. And she was playing in her front yard and her mother or grandmother was kind of watching from the doorstep. And every couple of seconds, she'd kind of look left, look right look back at her daughter, look left, look right, look back at her daughter. Daughter's totally oblivious to what's going on. She's a happy kid, right? Just wanting to play outside because it's it's a nice summer day. And it hit me really hard in that moment. And I, and I know the epi epidemiological data. It was five miles from my home. So the space of five miles, I'm going to go from there to my, my own daughter. And here's how those two girls are going to grow up statistically. My daughter is going to get a college education, and this young woman is more likely to not. Uh, my daughter is likely to make a six-figure income, and this young person will will maybe make you know $37,000, and, and that's after holding down a couple of jobs. The young black girl is five times, five times more likely to die giving childbirth than my daughter is, and my daughter will live 16 years longer. Same little girl. Same grass, same nice summer day, five miles difference. Uh, so that's, a, that's an incredible thing to think about and really kind of profound, I think. We have heard the term, I think, a lot, systemic racism. And it's become a very politically charged term because there have always kind of been two camps, I think, in our country up until 2020. There's been kind of the camp that, that continues to express that we have a problem with racism in America that needs to be rooted out. And then we have a majority camp that has come to believe that we live in a post-racial society. And I'll admit, I was in the latter camp for a lot of my life. I'm not racist. I don't know racist people. So, like, what's the problem? And I had a different cognizance of this uh, a few years ago through my own journey. But in 2020, I think there was a different experience because in the aftermath of, of the George Floyd killing and some of the other events we saw 
there was a different voice given to this 400-year grievance. It stated, that's fine that you're not racist, but that's not enough. You have to be actively anti-racist. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means an awareness and cognizance and being objectively and intellectually interested in the notion that we still live in a world and a society 400 years in the making that was built on racism. Civil rights movement was not that long ago. And, and even since then, racism has not disappeared from institutions in this country. When we say systemic racism, we don't mean that systems themselves are inherently racist or that all the individuals running systems are nefarious, sinister beings who have racially charged motives. We mean we still live in a, in a market system, in a government system that have incredibly strong institutional vestiges of racism. We have failed for almost all of this country's history to have the level of empathy and focus and thoughtfulness to be sufficiently anti-racist and to look at our institutions in a comprehensive and holistic way and challenge our basic notions of what's right and what's wrong. That all sounds very fluffy, but the most tactical thing a person can do with that, I do it with my team, we do it with pro bono work in the community, is to lift where you stand and challenge yourself. That doesn't mean you need to move out of your neighborhood. It doesn't mean you should switch jobs, but there is a hell of a lot every single one of us can do in our civic lives, in our professional lives, in our health system. It is giving more credence to the kinds of tools, resources, and being driven by a level of empathy that lets us challenge how we've engaged this community, how we engage the community today, and what has to change for us to recognize and exemplify this notion of being anti-racist so that we can not only change systems over time, but that we can help to start to drive a different intergenerational way of thinking about this. This is not a five-year thing. It's not a 10-year thing. The path to fixing it in this country, it took 400 years to make this mess. It's going to take us generations to get out. Our generation today, I think, with the cultural realizations we're undergoing and all of the things we've started talking about and health being so seminal to economic productivity, man, we can move this baseline to new heights if we were deliberate enough to do it. The first thing that I would uh, like to say is that since the listeners are listening to me and not looking at me is that I'm a white person. And as a white person, where I started on this is being able to say, the first thing that I'm going to do is look inside and read a lot. And that's what I've been doing. And some of my takeaways is that I have needed to be able to stand up in front of my colleagues and say something that I've learned through this reckoning, our country's reckoning with institutionalized racism and white supremacy, is that I've been complacent. I've been complacent in not recognizing the extent to which my white privilege has advantaged me and my white colleagues to the extent that white supremacy has been the key driver in driving adversity 
for people who are not white, particularly for people who are black, and to admit that, that I'm a racist, right? Because I've grown up in this white supremacist society. And admitting you have a problem is the beginning of becoming more, I, I don't want to say anything too lofty like enlightened, right? It's not. Admitting you have a problem is the beginning of a willingness of opening the mind to understand how I, as an individual, got to where I am with myself in this white supremacist society. Part of that is understanding that it's not going to be white people who get us out of this, right? It's a lot of this is white people getting out of the way. Health centers are organizations that certainly have been on the vanguard of this movement. That doesn't mean that health centers don't have work to do, right? We all have work to do. So I think it's taking some of that work and, and furthering it, and it is having white people be incredibly humble and learning how to not talk and rather listen and learn how to have our organizations be more reflective of the population served, not only at the front desk and in medical records, but all the way up to the PCPs and ultimately to the C-suite. And I know that those are the commitments that our FQHCs are taking. And I, I believe that those are also the commitments that our Committee on Diversity, Equity, and Racial Justice is looking to undertake at C3 as well. Now, further to the point that you made, if you look at the state of Massachusetts, more specifically, if you look at the city of Boston, right, there are communities such as the community of Roxbury that is low income and people who live there are primarily black and brown. And then there's another community in Boston, which is called the Back Bay, which is the, the fancy area and it's high income, and it is disproportionately populated by people who are white. The life expectancy difference in these two communities is 30 years. And you hear that, and it's hard to believe, but those are the facts. And there are so many reasons why that's the case. You know, ultimately, it's what you led with. It's racial injustice. It's race institutionalized racism. It's all of these sort of microaggressions and the microabrasions over time that over a decade and then another decade and another decade lead to disproportionate morbidity, chronic disease, poor environmental factors that ultimately lead to the premature death that I mentioned. Now you're going to hear from Ernest Grant, the president of the American Nurses Association, on the disparate impact of COVID-19 and how we can hardwire conformance to social justice in the nursing profession. You know, events around the country that are happening today tend to be a very stark reminder when we look at, uh, you know, that COVID-19 is not the only pandemic that Americans are facing. You know, again, just referencing back to the data that you uh, presented about African Americans and healthcare and the disparity uh, that they receive. Uh, we know that racism is a longstanding public health crisis that impacts not only the mental, but spiritual and physical health 
And, you know, COVID-19 obviously is just exacerbating this crisis right now and, and adding stress to the Black community and other communities of color, which are experiencing obviously just higher rates of infections and death. But I think the, the underlying factors that drive this is the disproportionate burden of disease on the social determinants of health, um, you know, meaning that the social and the, the economic factors that contribute to poor access to healthcare or poor health status, including, you know, incidents of like, uh, you know, chronic disease like uh, diabetes and, and hypertension. So um, I think to the, the way the nursing profession mobilized around this important uh, issue is that it is part of who we are as nurses to, uh, you know, to call attention to that. Obviously, we try to promote, you know, uh, health and health means, um, you know, not necessarily just applying in the acute care setting, you know, in the hospital. It is also uh, outside of the hospital as well. And, you know, I had the opportunity uh, back in May to uh, have a discussion with the, uh, the, the House Committee on Ways and Means on the disparate impact of COVID-19 on these uh, communities of color. And we shared some recommendations that were specific to, uh, specifically related to COVID-19 and to address some of the longstanding issues of racial disparities, such as uh, the crisis in the maternal uh, mortality and basic access to healthcare, including the, the mental health services. And I think to answer the second part of your question about what to say to, to those who, who want the nursing profession to stay focused on caring for the ill instead of demanding, uh, you know, the uh, supporting social reform, reform, you know, we have, as nurses, we have a responsibility to use our voice to call for change. You know, our code of ethics obligates us as nurses to be allies and to, uh, to advocate and speak up against racism, discrimination, and injustice. And we are not uh, truly uh, fulfilling that or or following our code of ethics when uh, you know we're expected to just only treat uh, in the acute care setting and forget about what else is going on. We must be the change that we want to see in our workplace and in our community. So uh, you know, uh, so as nurses, we you know we start that uh, that change and uh, and of course um, you know we uh, we're able to. Um, uh, get other thought leaders, uh, you know, uh, people who are looking at value-based care and et cetera, to begin to adopt what, uh, you know, what we're wanting to see. Uh, you know, one of the first priorities that I set as president, uh, as ANA president, was to promote efforts that would increase the diversity of nursing, and ANA is committed to implementing comprehensive strategies to uh, address these inequities. But again, we must start early. Uh, to eradicate a lot of the stereotypes. Uh, one of the things that I do, uh, you know, I go into elementary schools and that's where it needs to start for uh, perhaps for someone who wants to consider nursing as a career or, or whatever. Uh, I go in, work with a fourth grade class. Um, the, uh, the audience may not realize this, but I am uh, six foot five. Uh, so, uh, you know, so when you're going into a, uh, you know, nursing, I mean, a uh, elementary school, and uh, you know you're talking to young kids about considering nursing as a career. Uh, you know if they see the six foot five black guy there, you know who knows there may be a, a young black boy or or Hispanic boy or even a, a white boy who probably never thought about nursing. Um, you know, but uh, perhaps in their mind they're thinking, well, if he can do it, 
you know, why can't I? You know, and we begin to, uh, you know, see that, uh, that there. So we began to eradicate those stereotypes that may be there. Also, we aim for uh, ANA itself, we aim for a nursing workforce to be equally representative of the diverse population that we serve. So there it comes to the nursing schools being able to admit more people of color and from different cultures and to embrace from there as well. It also means uh, doing uh, you know, some of the other fundamental change, such as the textbooks that we have, uh, you know, the way that they begin to address uh, what they think may be cultural, but, uh, but it really doesn't, uh, you know, it, it lumps people into a certain category. And because we don't fit that stereotype, um, you know, we began to begin to, uh, you know, create some, some complications, so to speak, uh, or the, the way that uh, conformance, so to speak, to, uh, to, you know, to social justice uh, within the uh, uh, profession that way. So we have to look at, um, you know, remodeling our textbooks and how they begin to address things. And then I think uh, within the uh, profession itself, uh, having uh, leadership academies or mentorship program. I know ANA has, a, uh, we have a great mentorship program that uh, uh, actually the first time last year, I think we had a little over 9,000 people to participate in that. And it's, it's mentorship from the beginning, uh, from the novice nurse, all the way through to the seasoned nurse who's going to uh, perhaps go into positions of leadership. Uh, you know, they too, even though they're recognized as a leader, if they're just becoming a manager or, or even uh, uh, going into the C-suite, they still need to be mentored as to, uh, you know, how they can begin to set the example of change uh, along those ways. And implementing a system of check and balances within uh, the, the hospital systems. And, you know, I, I've always have said that uh, hospitals and uh, long-term care facilities should take a look at the, the makeup of, of their boards or of their administration and their leadership and see, does it reflect the people that you're caring for as well? Those are some of the ways that we can go about getting these changes underway. It is going to take a while to, to get it done, but that is certainly some of the, uh, the ways that we can begin to do that. COVID-19 has put a spotlight on the systemic institutional racism and inequities in our healthcare industry. Dr. Stephen Clasco from Jefferson Health, Christina Severin from Community Care Cooperative, and Dr. Gordon Chen from ChenMed share their insights on the topic. I think one of the things that the pandemic has proven, we knew it before. By the way, everything about the pandemic we knew before. It's just that the inequities you know, the fact that if you're African-American in a certain zip code in Philadelphia and you, you came into a hospital, you had a four times chance of dying. And if you were Caucasian in a different thing because of socioeconomic factors was not something we didn't know. It's not like, oh, wow, COVID really taught us that because we knew pre-COVID there was a 21 year difference in life expectancy in Philadelphia, you know, based on zip code. So we knew that before we had, had studies about it. And, and that's despite the fact that we have like five academic medical centers in Philadelphia. So what I said, and I believe that, I think what the pandemic has proven is since you brought up Medicare for all, the pandemic has proven that Bernie Sanders was 100% right about the problem. That we have a sick care, hospital driven, insurance driven, pharma driven, corporate driven, fragmented, expensive and inequitable healthcare system. The pandemic has proven that, that he gets an A for that. I think the pandemic has also proven <laughs> that his solution of let's get the federal government state to, states to work together to actually run healthcare 
is probably a huge mistake on the solutions. I give them an A for the problem identification and an F given how well the states and the federal government have cooperated on the pandemic on the solution. The other thing that we have all witnessed during the COVID pandemic, starting with the murder of George Floyd, is the uprising in this country and the calling for racial justice and Black Lives Matter. So for us, those two, the movement to racial justice and the COVID pandemic have really become quite confounding especially when you look at the rates of prevalence and morbidity and mortality from COVID that are experienced by uh, communities that are disproportionately people of color, people who are black and people who are are brown. And so what we want to do now in phase two is bridge the digital divide. What we really mean there is not only having equality, on who can access the telehealth modalities, telephone, video, for example, so that when we do patient satisfaction surveys, we would no longer see a difference between level of satisfaction with video visits between people who are brown or black and people who are white. Um, We would see an equality of that because we would have enabled everyone to have equitable access to everything that is needed to effectively use those modalities. More importantly, when we look at the healthcare system prior to the pandemic, it was not equitable. We know this. We know when we look at immunization rates locally and nationally for people who are black, that they are materially lower than for people who are white. COVID has revealed something to a greater extent of what we already knew, which there are racial disparities in health outcomes. It's very clear. You can have cities across America, communities that are just separated by miles, but life expectancy can vary from 10 to 20 years, just depending upon what side of the railroad tracks you you live on, which is social injustice. And it tends to be the minorities, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, that we, we see this gap in life expectancy and there's no reason for it, right? And we need to start to address why we have that gap there and aggressively close it. And first off, in a lot of these poor neighborhoods, poor communities across America, healthcare facilities are leaving the poor neighborhoods and they're going to the richer communities. And they're, they're following where they can have the biggest business opportunity. And I don't blame them for that. But as a society, we need to figure out how to go into the communities that have the greatest need. We know that COVID has higher infection rates and higher mortality in Blacks and Hispanics. And again, I think it comes down to a few things. Number one, trust. Do these communities trust the information that they're hearing? Do they trust the healthcare institutions? Do they have the resources to protect themselves from COVID? Are they working in more crowded areas? Are they living in more crowded environments that predispose them to more COVID transmissions? And I believe they're at greater risk because they have so many of these risk factors that I just mentioned. And so how can we do a better job in engaging these communities? And that's where the greatest need is. 
it's important that we recognize perspectives from different stakeholders within the, the healthcare environment. That includes hospitals and physician-led ACOs, as well as organizations that are looking to create equity in the, how we look at hospital rankings. So now you're going to hear from Shannon Brownlee of the Lown Institute, Mark Wynn of UNC Health Alliance, Christopher Crow of Catalyst Health Network, and Cheryl Lulius from the Medical Home Network. Let's be really clear, Black Lives Matter has really kindled that movement in the hospital sector, where hospitals all over the country are looking at their efforts or non-efforts towards health equity and through kind of who are they hiring, who are, who are their doctors, everything from that to who are their patients that they making sure that they're taking care of all the patients that they could. And that's the piece that I think we are contributing to most is we looked at something called health equity, which Vikas created this, this metric for, which effectively measured whether or not the patients inside the hospital reflected the racial and socioeconomic status of the people outside the hospital. And hospitals are starting to pay attention to that as well as who are they hiring and what's the racial mix of their patients. So we've contributed certainly, but this is a much broader movement. And we're excited that we effectively anticipated that this would start to be important and included that metric in the hospital's index. And you asked another question, which was, you know, what does it mean when you see two hospitals 20 minutes apart with wildly different racial inclusivity scores? What it means, bottom line, is that hospitals do a lot of things to affect who walks in their doors. It's not like they just sit there and wait passively for whoever comes in the emergency room or whatever patients are referred to get their surgery in the hospital. They actively seek out, many hospitals actively seek out, in particular, patients with good private insurance because it pays more. And so they may advertise in a suburb nearby that's got a high income. They may put a primary care clinic in a high-income neighborhood to try to feed patients into the hospital. And there are also cultural things, cultural history that affects where patients end up having to do with where they feel welcome. And what does the lobby actually look like? And does it welcome people of all races and all socioeconomic levels? Or does it basically say, this is a hospital for rich white people, and you probably won't feel very welcome here? We invest in data and analytics and, and really think that that's a core foundational element of doing value work so that we can be transparent about data, find good opportunities. And more recently, we're moving into uh, looking across our populations for opportunities where we're seeing disparate outcomes uh, among different populations and really trying to look at, um, at our data uh, through the lens of, of health equity and finding opportunities. So investing in platforms that allow us to ingest data, analyze it, and visualize data well that allows it to be actionable. As you mentioned, we're investing in patient and provider-facing services around um, intensive case management. This connects very much to our purpose of helping communities thrive. And assumed in the word community for us is everyone, not just people who have insurance, not just people who can afford care, it's everyone. If you believe that a community has to thrive with having this idea of the pillar of education, 
health and business. That means you need everyone to have education. You need everyone to have health and everyone have the chance for a job. And so we take that very, very seriously. And you did a very good job of describing the tale of two cities that Dallas is. I mean, Dallas Independent School District, again, education, this is where this overlaps as part of a, a community. Dallas Independent School District, 85% of the kids are in poverty. 85% of the kids. It's absolutely a tale of two cities. It's a Southern sector versus a Northern sector. And so we think that all those great things that you said about Dallas are true and it won't always be true because ultimately a high tide lifts all boats and a low tide will pull down all boats. We have to help everyone. And that goes back to how it worked in Hillsborough with those three doctors. We know systemic racism is a real threat to the health of our patients, families, and communities. And this group has taken a number of steps to be part of the solution. Some of the steps that the group is taking includes providing testing, direct care, and contact tracing while partnering with the City of Chicago to provide services, access to groceries, access to pharmacy, essential items, housing, emergency housing. There's a lot of work that's also coming out of this with hiring, creating hiring programs that build pipelines for people of color to find careers. In addition to connecting to care and resources, and another really interesting byproduct is the listening aspect of this when you bring a coalition together to really understand more about our patients and commit to be better community partners. So there's the immediate investments to connect to care and resources COVID related. And then there's the broader thinking about other things we need to address as community, like hiring and other community investments to keep dollars in the community and create jobs and rebuild local economies. So we're really proud to be a part of this really ambitious coalition. Chronic disease in minority populations is an area of focus for our next three guests. Bobby Sapuka from Cricket Health, Edwin Estevez with RGVACO, and Mike Funk with Humana. There's no question that you look at the incident rate of, of kidney disease and the disproportionate impact it has on Black Americans, on people of color in this nation, it hits you square in the face. And if you don't think intentionally about how to solve that, then it's just a, it would be a tragic missed opportunity. I think one of the powers of cricket is that we are able to, again, engage patients in their home and engage an awful lot of patients across our platform. But we also also acknowledge that our, our first point of entry can be virtual. And there are an awful lot of folks, given that kidney disease disproportionately impacts those who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, who may not have access to internet, who may not have reliable Wi-Fi or broadband, for whom this might be a challenge. This is an industrious population, uh, a go-getter type population, uh, one that is uh, unashamedly hardworking and driven, uh, and obviously uh, also pretty impacted by uh, resources. It's the poorest county in the state of Texas uh, is significantly impacted by diabetic conditions, predominantly because of the access uh, to the foods and the cultural foods that are associated with the culture that's here. And so we needed to, to address that. And so 
in our approach, what we wanted to do to change the narrative was we were, we were going to marry the community, engage the community appropriately. So our nutrition services don't say, you know, we, they don't promote, don't eat tortillas because don't eat tortillas is not going to fit. It's not going to fly. What we do promote is eat less tortillas. Uh, and that message kept tortillas in the message and at the same time allow for us then to begin to change the narrative. All of our publications are in bilingually, uh, bilingually done. Just that little step, everything that we do, everything that we engage, and even the, the, the outward-facing process is like a website, so on and so forth. We don't pay as much attention to that because we know for a fact that our patients are in our offices and in their homes and in our communities. So partnering with the local daycares, as they call them here, adult daycares, was more significant for us in terms of communication strategies than even uh, providing an electronic portal for patients to actually have access uh, to the information there. And so our opportunity to be connected to community needs is pretty significant. We know, we know, we know this uh, for not only scientifically know this from, from social science, but we also know it from the data that we're capturing that the level of stress that our population is, is, has engaged in, uh, this is a predominantly migrant population, uh, 12 to 14 hour days oftentimes uh, in terms of their work, uh, very, very locally focused in terms of their concerns, uh, yet with a sense of national pressure around them in terms of who they are and what they do uh, that has created quite a bit of anxiety around how they engage the healthcare system. So for us to actually engage families in any kind of activity required quite a bit of high trust. And so we developed trust. We built that sense of community with them. Any communication from uh, expected compliant communication from CMS to the patients, we tried to present it in a way in which was friendly, approachable, engageable, uh, non-threatening because any, any formality to that communication provided some form of unrest as well. Little things like that, paying attention to how people engage their daily living, how they do things, how they connect to their world, matters to public health, matters to health in general. And so we wanted to make sure that we were focused on that, that and that we drive a change around that, that expectation from just being aware of the space in which we were going to do this work. I think the pandemic quickly brought to light the inequities within our healthcare system and shined a much brighter light on that, especially amongst the minority and low-income populations that you mentioned, be they African-American, Native Americans, which we've not heard a lot about, have certainly been impacted significantly along with Asian-Americans and, to your point, the Hispanic population. I just read an article the other day, people of color make up 40% of the U.S. population, but account for as much as 52% of the deaths. Certainly, this creates an opportunity to better understand these disparities and act on them. It also places a brighter light on the work we're doing with social determinants of health and focusing on treating the whole person. You mentioned the Hispanics population and some of the issues down in Texas. Several years ago, we actually started a movement in San Antonio with local government and health-related agencies designed to improve the health of our members that we serve within the San Antonio area. And for many who may not be aware, the Hispanic population has a high incident within San Antonio of diabetes, and that was one of the 
main diseases that, that we focused on as we kicked this program off. The great thing about this movement is that while we were focused on our membership, the initiative did impact the broader community, and that effort has led to our expanded focus on social determinants of health, where today we have similar models in some 16 communities and growing. As we conclude our bonus episode today, I think it's important to hear from leaders in health policy and thinking about how we can improve upon health equity in our system. You're going to hear from Dave Chase of Health Rosetta, Mark McClellan, former CMS administrator, now currently with Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy, and Andrew Croshaw from Levitt Partners. In the tax bill that passed during this past administration, there's something called opportunity zones, which has mainly been about like physical plant investment tax breaks, like on real estate. Why not have those tax breaks apply to setting up some of these community-owned cooperative type models, encourage social impact investors to back them? I know there's a lot of folks who are very kind of awakened to the Black Lives Matter. Maybe there's there's cooperative structures in some of these disadvantaged communities that there could be some tax breaks around that. We can also uh, use this opportunity to help address uh, the, the real equity, uh, health equity concerns that have just been uh, so obvious in the pandemic and are going to be hard to address if we don't take steps to make healthcare more upstream and more about meeting people where they are and addressing the, uh, the social factors that have such a big influence on their health. What can we do now together as providers, as payers, as employers, uh, and, and patient consumer groups in the system to take advantage of the silver lining with the pandemic and adopt approaches together that move us faster to alternative uh, payment models. I think the Biden administration, as it relates to policy, is, is messaging and is showing in their actions that value will be an important tool for them. Their definition of value will be unique to their time and place, as it was in the Trump administration, as it was in the Obama administration. Because of the of the national conversation and awareness that we have around um, health disparities and around social justice, those will factor as large definitional components of what they what value means to them. Well, this concludes our bonus episode. I hope you learned so much. I think our guests over this last year have been tremendous, and there's some great thinking on health equity. If you want to learn more about the National Minority Health Month. You can go to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health website. And again, thank you for realizing that health equity is so important in this race to value. 